0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book, uh, the letter to the Philippians. Uh, Philippians chapter 4 verses 1 to 3. 1 to 3. Philippians 4, 1 to 3 has a couple of funny names, but nothing in comparison to the names that we'll encounter in uh, 2 Samuel 23. I think I can get the names uh, in Philippians 4 right. I make no promises about all of the names in 2 Samuel 23, so don't hold it against me. Uh, if I flub a few here and there. I have practiced, but there, there's a long list of strange names, and we'll get through it. Hopefully it won't be such a distraction uh, to you uh, that you can't pay attention. So Philippians 4, 1-3 is our scripture reading. Our sermon passage today is 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 8-39. to We're closing in on the end of 2 Samuel. And the plan... Uh, is to go from there into the first two chapters of 1 Kings. We're not going to make our way all the way through 1 Kings or even 2 Kings, but just to close out the Davidic cycle in God's Word, to finish out this history of David, I think would be beneficial to our congregation to bring us to that point of uh, a good end point uh, uh, in this uh, time that we've spent in 1 and 2 Samuel. So our scripture reading, a sermon passage rather, 2 Samuel 23, 8-39. We'll get to that in a moment. First, our scripture reading. This Philippians 4, verses 1 to 3. And brothers and sisters, a gentle reminder, as always, this is the Word of God. People long to hear the Lord speak to them. This is God speaking to you. There's nothing more important that you can be doing right now than listening to God. As He speaks, as He talks, as He declares. So please give your full attention to the Word of God. <clears throat> Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, turning to 2 Samuel 23 beginning a reading at verse 8 and reading through the end of the chapter, verse 39. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb-Bashibeth, a Tachanemite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi the Harahite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi where there was, just, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it, and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would, would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at risk, at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These, three, these things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty. And he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three, and David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was, was one of the uh, of the thirty, Elhanan the son of Dodo, of Bethlehem, Shammah, of Herod. Elika of Herod, Helles the Paltite, Ira the son of Ikesh of Tekoa, Abiezer of Anathoth, Mabunai the Hushahite, Hushathite, Zalmon the Ahuhite, Maharai of Net- Netophah, Heleb the son of Baana of Netophah, Ittai the son of Ribai of Gibeah of the people of Benjamin, Benaiah of Pirathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gash, abbe Alban, the Ar- Arbathite, Asmaveth of Bahurim, Eliaba, ha- Eli- the Shalbol knight, the sons of Joshan, Jonathan, Shama the Haraite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Harahite, Eliphethet, the son of Asa- Asabai of Ma'akah, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gileonite, Hezro of Carmel, Paari, the Arbite, Igal, the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani the Gadite, Zelech the Ammonite, Nahari the beer of Beroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira the Ithrite, Garab the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. And thus ends the reading of God's word this morning. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we again are grateful for your word. We're thankful that we hear you, Lord, when your word is read. We're thankful that we hold your word in our hands, that we get to sit under its reading and its teaching, its preaching. And so we pray now, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word today. We pray that you would be with the one who preaches, be with the ones who hear. Oh, Spirit, we pray that you would lead us into understanding because we know that you are the author of what we have read. We pray that you would grow us, that you would conform us, that you would make us like Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in a sense, we've already seen a a version of what's in this morning's sermon passage when we considered chapter 21, verses 15 to 22. In that passage, we we got brief descriptions of four of David's men who defeated four Philistine giants. And now the author of 2 Samuel resumes recounting the valorous and almost incredible deeds of David's men, this time of those known as the mighty men of David. The commendations found in chapter 21 and here surround the Song of David and his poetic last words, which we saw last week, was the last official statement that David made as king. And the book ends for this section of 1 and 2 Samuel. The epilogue, as we've seen before, are the recounting of David making atonement for Saul's sin against the Gibeonites in chapter 21, and then the story at the end of David making atonement for his own sin in chapter 24. And so what we get in this epilogue is a picture of a very fallible king. David having great success despite his flaws because of the men by whom he was surrounded. But ultimately, he had success because God had made a covenant with David that that God would not break. David is a flawed man. He's a fallible man. He fails on many different fronts, on many different occasions. The only reason that he has the success that he has is because the Lord was on his side. The Lord had made a covenant with him and the Lord placed around him These mighty men. As we noted in the previous round of commendations in chapter 21, these men are honored for their valor in the pages of scripture itself. And this gives us a hint about what it means to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Now that is not to say that these men's names are with certainty written in the book of life, only that their names being written on the pages of scripture point to the spiritual reality for every believer. If you trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, your name is in the book. And so these men's names on the pages of scripture in chapters 21 and now chapter 23, that's in a small way analogous to that. It points to that reality for the believer. Well, these men's names are memorialized on the pages of Scripture for the amazing military feats they accomplished. In the seafaring branches of the U.S. military, the Navy and the Marine Corps, there's a tradition known as the meritorious mast. I'm sure that the other branches have a similar practice. I'm not aware of what that is. But a meritorious mast is a written recognition of work well done by a sailor or a Marine. And it takes its name from the tradition of the Navy when the crew would gather around the mainmast of a sailing ship, of a of a of a sometimes a tri-masted ship. A ship of the line. They would have commendations read aloud by the captain. And that is, in a sense, what's going on here. But rather than it being on a piece of paper that is stuffed into a drawer, that may eventually will be framed and placed on a veteran's wall, the commendations that these men received ended up in the word of God itself. Well, what I would ask you to consider as we make our way through the sermon is this. Most people desire to be remembered long after their death. But there is nothing greater than to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me say that again. Most people desire to be remembered long after their death, but there is nothing greater than to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. The sermon is divided into three parts. The first is the rule of 3. The second, a libation unto the Lord, and the third, thirty and change. So again, the rule of 3, that's the first part of the sermon, the second, a libation unto the Lord, and the third, thirty and three and change. So let's look at the rule of three now. Uh, David's mighty men were divided into two sections. The 30, we'll get to them a little bit later, and the three. The 30 were a group who were David's toughest fighting men, but the three were even more elite than the 30. It's kind of like the Navy SEALs, if you are at all interested in uh, that uh, military organization. All of the SEAL teams are amazing in their abilities to carry out special operations, but SEAL Team 6, SEAL Team 6 was the most elite team of the organization. It's now been morphed into some other type of organization within the SEAL teams. There's no longer officially a SEAL Team 6, but when they were active, they were the best. They were the best of the best. And these three were the elite of the special forces of David's army. They were comprised of the men listed in this passage, and so they received special recognition in Israel's history. The first of David's men to be mentioned is Josheb-Bashabeth, who is described as a Tachemmonite, the chief of these three men. Verse 8 says that he wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Next up is Eleazar the son of Dodo, who was a son of Ahohi, he was involved in a battle against, with David against the Philistines, and the men of Israel withdrew. But Eleazar rose up and he fought against the Philistines, and he struck them down until his hand was weary. Verse 10 says that his hand, it clung, or it, it, it froze to the sword, probably because he had held it for so long in battle against the Philistines that his hand was locked. It was stuck in a tight grip that he couldn't release. The third man mentioned is Shammah the son of Agi the right. And apparently Shammah was a fierce vegetarian because when the Philistines came at a field of lentils that the Israelites had abandoned out of fear, Shammah defended it. The man apparently had a love of legumes. You come this far, but no further. And verse 12 says that he took his stand in the midst of the field and he defended it. He struck down the Philistines when they came at him. Now, in the brief accounts of Eleazar and Shema, two similar key phrases are found. And what's stated in these phrases regarding these two men is certainly implied with regard to the first man. We read in verse 10, And Yahweh brought about great victory that day. And in verse 12, And Yahweh worked a great victory. And the word that's translated victory in many of our English uh, versions of the Bible is also often translated salvation. God worked salvation. He brought salvation to this man that day. But I don't think that it's a stretch with regard to Josheb Bashabeth to conclude that his success in killing 800 men was the result also of Yahweh bringing the victory. Generally speaking, I think that people, men and women, were a great deal stronger and much more intelligent 3,000 years ago than they are today. I do if People ask me if I believe in evolution, I say no. I believe in, in de-evolution or devolution. I don't believe we're getting better, smarter, stronger. I think we're getting worse. <laughs> we're getting dumber. We're getting weaker. Technological advances doesn't necessarily make our current age superior to previous ones. But even if these men were ten times stronger physically, it's still unlikely that they would be able single-handedly to pull off the types of victories described in these verses without supernatural assistance from the Lord. And that's why I believe that the first of the three men mentioned, even though it doesn't explicitly state that the Lord gave him the victory, it's impossible that he would would have gained this victory over 800 men aside from assistance from the Lord. Proverbs 21 verses 30 to 31 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So this section is a commendation of these men for their valor and their bravery, but it also brings honor to the Lord because these incredible victories would not have been possible without Him. Now, brothers and sisters, we no longer live in uh, this nation of Israel. We don't live in in a theocracy in the way that the Israelites did. We don't carry out our battles as Christians on the physical plane with physical weapons, swords, or even guns. We don't do that. We're not engaged in some form of of Christian jihad, a holy war. Our battles, the New Testament tells us, are spiritual. Our battles are not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And the Lord similarly has equipped his, his sons and his daughters. He's given us the weapons that we need. And he commands us to gird ourselves up with these weapons, both offensive weapons and defensive weapons, in order to protect ourselves. And so we strap these things on, the sword of the spirit, the breastplate uh, that we have, that God has given us. We put these things on us to fight spiritual battles. But it is the Lord who brings the victory. And so anytime we have a victory over sin in our life, anytime we're able to flee temptation and not give in to it, rather than being prideful about that victory, we have to give all credit to the Lord because it all comes from Him. That brings us to the second part of the sermon, a libation unto the Lord. Verse 13 reads, And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. When a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Now, a brief account of David's time at the cave of Adullam is found in 1 Samuel chapter 22. We read there that David had fled to Gath after having been given the bread of presence by the priest Ahimelech at the city of Nob. He was also at that time given the sword of Goliath, and so David fled to Gath. And in, at Gath, in Gath, he became afraid of the king Achish, and he changed his appearance so that he looked like a madman, so that Achish would let him go. And so he left the city without any harm being done to himself. And from Gath, he went on to the cave of Adullam, which became known as the fortress or the stronghold. And it was at that cave that his father and his mother and his brothers came to him, having been driven out of Bethlehem. But after some time, David took his father and his mother to Moab, And he asked the king there to take in his parents. And David went back to the king of Adullam. And it likely was at this time that the three men who uh, we read about in our passage this morning, they went on this daring quest for water from the cave, uh, from the well of Bethlehem. This event might possibly have happened after David became king. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, we read that David went down to the stronghold and the Philistines spread out over the valley of Rephaim it's possible that this event happened there but wherever it happened it's a remarkable story and at first glance it's easy to read this section and think that it's referring to the three the men spoken of in the previous section by name but in fact we're not told who these three are only that they were three of the 30 chief men As one commentator writes, because the passage offers no clue as to the identity of these three men, we must take into into serious consideration the possibility that these three are not the three. The three and the thirty are separate groups, although they work together. There's some overlap, but they're separate groups. And the passage says that these three who go on this raid to get the water for David, that they're members of the thirty. Wherever this happened in David's life, whoever the three men were, the basic thread of the story is that David, he's out in the wilderness, he's very likely homesick for Bethlehem, he voiced his desire openly to have some water from the Bethlehem well. Now Bethlehem was about 12 miles to the east of the cave where David and his men were. And between Bethlehem and David was a large Philistine force, and there was also a garrison of Philistine soldiers at Bethlehem itself. Now three of David's mighty men, they had come down to the cave. They'd overheard what David said about drinking water from the Bethlehem well. And verse 16 says, Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. The journey that these men would have gone on was a 24-25 mile round trip. And that would have been difficult to do in a short amount of time in ordinary circumstances. About the most that a human being can travel on foot was around 15 to 18 miles in a day. They had to take uh, breaks. They had to get rest. These men weren't traveling in ordinary circumstances. They had to break through the camp of the Philistines. Now it's conceivable that they could have gone around. They could have gone around the valley of Rephaim, gone a, a different way to get to the well. But it's almost as if they desired to take this difficult route straight through the enemy. We shouldn't forget what verse 13 says. These men had just come to David at Adullam. They had just gone on a very perilous journey to get to him. And now they turn around and go back out. They've heard their leader speak of his deep desire for water from from his hometown. And they decide to go back out into dangerous territory. Very likely that David was simply speaking to himself out loud. he probably didn 't even know that these men were around to hear his words, but they took him at his word. They wanted to to help their leader, whom they loved. and so they went all the way to the well of Bethlehem by the gate of the city, and they brought water back to David and what does David do with the water? Does he drink it? No. You read that, and it's almost offensive. You're almost offended for these men because of what David does. His response is totally unexpected. He refused to drink the water. He poured the water that these men had nearly sacrificed their lives for, he poured it out on the ground. It's hard to believe that he would do such a thing. But then we read the reason that he gave. He didn't just pour it out on the ground, certainly not in contempt of these men's valorous journey. He poured it out to the Lord. He says in verse 17, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should drink this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. Joyce Baldwin writes this in her commentary. The story of such devotion to a leader became part of Israel's literary heritage, especially as the leader was humble enough to admit that, the, that only the Lord was worthy of such sacrifice. That is why he poured it out to the Lord as a libation. It represented the lifeblood of three brave men. That brings us to the third and the final part of the sermon, 30 and change. In the last section of our passage, the author lists out the remaining names of David's mighty men. Two of these men received special mention. First is Abishai, uh, whom we know fairly well. He was the brother of Joab, as verse 18 reminds us. He was the chief of the 30. He also had a brief stint commanding the army in Joab's place. But he was always in Joab's shadow. Verse 18 says that he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name for himself beside the three. And verse 19 goes on to say that he was the most renowned of the 30, but he never attained to the three. He never made it to the top tier, to the the SEAL Team 6. He never made it there, not that high. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, is the other man to get special mention of the 30. Verse 20 says that he was a doer of great deeds. We read that he struck down two aerials of Moab. The meaning of the word aerial is unknown. Whatever they are, they were impressive enough to make it into our passage. He also struck down a lion in a pit on a snowy day. He struck down a handsome Egyptian who was coming at him with a spear. Beniah had only a staff. But he went down and he took the man's spear from him and he struck the man with his own spear. He didn't make it to the three either, but because of his prowess, David did set him over his personal bodyguard. So David saw the feats of the feats of this man, and he put it put him in close uh, proximity to himself. The last section of names of, of verses from verse uh, from verses uh, twenty four to thirty nine contain the names of the remaining thirty. There's some familiar names in the list, like Asahel, Joab's brother. Some may recognize Eliphalet. Others, Eliam, who was Bathsheba's father. And of course, the last man mentioned was Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, and the man that David had murdered. But there's no doubt for the reason that the author saved his name at the last. And at the end, we read that there were 37 in all. This is probably due to the fact that when one man died, he was replaced by another, but they were still known as the 30. These were the men that you want on your side when things get messy. They were were the ones David could always count on when he was in danger, which happened quite a bit to David throughout his life. And so it's fitting that they have been honored in this way. All countries have some way of recognizing members of their military for acts of courage and valor, and it's a good thing. But there is a book of names that remains secret that won't be revealed until the last day. And to to have your name written on the lists in its pages is far greater to take nothing away from these men's names being written in the pages of Scripture. And we make no judgment as to these men's eternal state. We have to admit that our passage this morning isn't necessarily identical with the Lamb's Book of Life. There may be a great deal of overlap. Perhaps every man listed in our passage this morning also finds his name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But they're not identical. They're not the same thing. The greatest commendation we can receive comes to us as a result of having faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true even of the Old Testament saints. The verses that we read just prior to our worship service this morning from Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, it it shows us this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. The author of Hebrews is talking about the Old Testament saints. They believed in the substance of the things they could not see. They believed. The, The saving faith that the Old Testament saints had is in some ways more rebar- remarkable than the faith of those who lived and walked with Jesus during his life and ministry. They had so little in terms of what had been revealed about Jesus to go on, and yet they believed. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, we live at an age, and younger people in our congregation... This is something that's especially important for you, but none of us is immune to it. We live in an age where the greatest good is to have your name publicized everywhere. To be famous in our, is our society's version of immortality. And these days, there are so many more ways to be famous. All you have to do is be a social media influencer. You have to get enough people following you on Twitter or on TikTok or on, uh, or, or on uh, Instagram. But it's always been this way. When I was in a middle school, I joined the chorus. I had been in the band in sixth grade. I didn't like it. It wasn't my thing. I joined the chorus in seventh grade. And I can remember that we. Uh, one of the songs that we sang was Irene Cara's uh, song, Fame. How many of you remember that song? You're going to be humming it to yourselves if you do. And some of the lyrics uh, to this song were, Fame, I'm going to live forever. I'm going to learn how to fly high. I'm going to make it to heaven and it sung in such a, with such an earnestness, an '80s type of earnestness, but an earnestness nonetheless. And the version that we sang in our chorus it ended by repeating the word "remember, remember, remember" over and over until we faded out. Now, those of you who, re- who remember that song, you, you, you're going to be singing it the rest of the day, and for that I apologize, but not really. But the song itself epitomizes the 80s. It was, it was released in 1980, and it epitomized the rest of that decade. And it's, it's own, in its own cheesy way, it captures our society's version of what eternal life is. The best that we can do, according to the society around us, is to be remembered after we are dead by as many people as possible. That is eternal life, according to the world. And so we have to make ourselves known to everyone. We've got to become famous so we'll live on forever in the people's collective memory. And I think this type of thinking has infected the church, both the thinking of church members but also of its ministers. But the vast majority of Christians will have to content ourselves with toiling away in relative obscurity. We'll have to be happy about that, all the while knowing that our names are known by the only one who counts, Jesus Christ. There's a a saying that goes back 300 years. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. It's a quote that's attributed to Nicholas Ludwig Count von Zinzendorf. It's a quote that I've tried to keep in mind over the years, often unsuccessfully. For non-preacher types, it could be amended to believe the gospel. Die, be forgotten. with the notion contained in this quote, it runs completely counter to the ideals of the society in which we live. Far too many of us believers are concerned with making a name for ourselves. Far too many preachers are, 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 are obsessed with making a name for ourselves. We want fame. We don't want to live in obscurity. And it's at least in part because our society has taught us That fame is what's most important. And we have bought the lie. Now, David's mighty men didn't do their courageous feats because they wanted to have their names written in the Bible so that people 3,000 years later would be uh, reading their names and tripping over the pronunciation. (laughs) They did what they did because they were loyal to David. And they were able to do those things because the Lord made them able Euodia and Syntyche, they didn't labor with Paul in the gospel so that their names would be written down in Paul's letter to the Philippians. They simply believed in Jesus Christ and did what he called them to do. And in truth, their names were recorded apparently because of some controversy between the two. And Paul is asking uh, someone in in Philippi, he's calling upon these two to to come to an agreement. He's asking someone, his, his faithful companion, to help them out in this disagreement that they've uh, found themselves in but their names found on the pages of scripture but what's really important about these two women is what Paul says at the end of verse 3 in that passage whose names are written in the book of life there is nothing better that can be said about any of us if your name is written in the book of life it does not matter who knows your name after you die because you have a real, true, eternal life. You won't live on as a memory. You will live forever. Now, if you don't believe in Jesus, yeah, the best you can do is to be famous on TikTok or Instagram. But it really won't matter in the end. Because your name won't be known by the only one who counts. And you will be punished. But... All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, truly believe, then your name is written in the book, the Lamb's Book of Life. And it will never, it can never be erased. It cannot be blotted out. The Lord will remember you for all eternity as you live forever with Him. And he is the only one who counts. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful. We're thankful for the commendations that were given to these courageous men. We're thankful for their feats of valor, the victories that they won. We're thankful that we know that David could not have done what he did. He could not have been as successful as he was without these men. But we're thankful for the spiritual, spiritual reality to which their names on the pages of Scripture point. We're thankful, Lord, that they make us think about what it means to have our names written down by the hand of Christ Jesus in his book of life. We're thankful, O oh Lord, that we've had the occasion to think about immortality. And what is better to be remembered here on earth by people who remain after we're gone? To be remembered by the Lamb, Christ Jesus Himself. We're thankful, Lord, that we're remembered by you. And we pray, O Lord, that you would cause us by your Spirit to remember you. We pray that we would never forsake you. We pray that you would indeed equip us for the battles ahead. And we pray that you would remind us that we are already victorious in Christ Jesus. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.